Welcome to the 99th episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman, former Sports Illustrated senior writer, ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And this week, I welcome in Georgie Borman, the senior contributor to The Federalist, the widely popular conservative website. And here's what's kind of cool. This episode was spawned by social media idiocy. Last week, I wrote a really dumb tweet about people having too many kids. And then Georgie responded with a piece for The Federalist that was headlined, Sports writer Jeff Perlman compares having more than two kids to tossing garbage into the ocean. Which kind of pissed me off, because she didn't reach out to me or even at me on Twitter. So I DM'd her, expecting this angry back and forth, because that's what we do these days, angry back and forths. Only, I wasn't angry at all. Georgie apologized, and I admitted my tweet sucked. And now, here we are, 180s politically and socially, talking social media stupidity, threatening online behavior, a little bit of politics. It's all right now in a kumbaya version of two writers singing Yang. First of all, thank you for doing this. I love that we're having this conversation, right? This is, I told my wife last night, I was like, these are the conversations I love having because. I always say that people who disagree online, politically, sports, music, whatever, right? The anger online, if you took a hundred of us, put them in a room without social media, without cable news, without politics, and we just all sat down and had donuts and coffee, it's not that we would agree on every issue, but I think we'd have pretty sort of agreeable conversations and can agree to disagree. And I feel like something in America has been lost in that regard. And uh, that's a long introduction to a couple of days ago, I wrote a really stupid tweet where someone I knew just announced that he was having his sixth kid. And I, I tweeted out, I just saw a tweet from a guy I know announcing how excited he and his wife are to be having child number six. Does there come a point when in the name of Earth survival and limited resources were allowed to say, hmm, I don't know, man. And I wrote that tweet really late at night and I didn't think much of it. And then the response was fierce. And then the next day or a day later, there's a piece in the Federalist where you are a uh, senior contributor. The headline is sports writer Jeff Perlman compares having more than two kids to tossing garbage into the ocean. And it was pretty harsh. I was upset in a way because you hadn't tagged me or reached out to me. I reached out to you on Twitter and first you apologized and here we are. And then we end up having like a 20 minute, really nice, lovely sort of back and forth DM exchange. That's my long-winded introduction in saying that I really appreciate the way you handle that. Oh, well, you extended me more more grace than was warranted. And I appreciate that you called me out on it to begin with. You know, a lot of people would just like sit there and fume, but people can't really um, change their behavior unless they're told that they need to change their behavior, you know? And so there's another, there's a, there's another layer to this behind just the fact that Twitter is a very inflammatory environment. And that is, as a writer, there are a lot of us, especially those of us who write online, where we do a lot of different types of content. I've done some fairly heavily reported and researched pieces. And I've done things like all the way on the other side of the spectrum where I I mock the trend of wearing leggings as pants, because leggings are definitely not pants. 
or, you know, I talk about Halloween decorations and, and how tacky they are and, and things like that. So like there's this entire spectrum that I've covered in my five years of writing for the Federalist. And so it's like, where does this, where did this post fall along that spectrum? And what was my due diligence um, when it comes to like reaching out to you and saying, hey, uh, do you want to like take that back? <laughs> do you, what, what, right. what more comments would you like to provide? I'm writing an article about this. And then that could give you a chance to reflect and be like, you know what? That was probably pretty dumb of me. But I, I assumed that because you hadn't deleted it, that you were, you were just going to stand by that. Right. And it was like, it was like a public statement. And in a sense, it's fair game. So that's one of the things that I was reflecting on after this post went up. I was like, hmm, I didn't handle that quite the way that I should have. And, you know, it's, it's like treat others the way that you want to be treated. And I remember, um, a few months ago, I was writing on a a very contentious topic, which is abortion, which I write about a lot. And there was this uh, columnist over at Life News, I believe. And she just ripped into me, but without even fully representing my arguments and definitely, definitely misconstruing my argument. And I was so mad. And you know what made me even more mad? She wasn't on Twitter. She wasn't on Twitter, so I couldn't be mad at her on Twitter. And um, there was, like, one of her other colleagues was on Twitter, and he tried to, like, defend her. And we had, like, this huge, long exchange, and I was I was just fuming. I was like, this, you know, that doesn't represent my arguments at all. Like, she should retract this. Like, I really thought it was that bad. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, being being on the other side of of that and wishing that somebody had reached out to you or like taken more time to understand where you're coming from. Like I should have been, I should have taken that into account. Right. It's just, it's a very simple concept. Just treat others the way that you want to be treated. But when we get on the internet, it's like all that goes out the window and we think, well, you know, I'm just commenting possibly anonymously in the discuss section and no, you know, five people are going to see what I write anyway. And I can just be mad and vent and it's not going to make a difference to how other people, you know, do whatever, which is interesting because you would think that we would all be trying to persuade each other, but that's not the way that we're acting at all. (laughs) We don't act as if we want to persuade each other. We act as if we just want to like rip each other's throats out. Well, it's really interesting. So, um, cause I was thinking about this. I don't even know why I wrote that tweet, right? Like, all right. So, Let's actually go through, let's take this step by step here. I write a tweet. I'm sitting there. I see it was a guy in the Kansas City Royals, right? Nice guy. As it's announced, he's having his sixth kid. And for some stupid reason that I cannot even articulate, just saw a tweet from a guy I don't know announcing how excited he and his wife are to be having child number six. Does there come a point when in the name of the Earth survival and limited resources, we're allowed to say, hmm, I don't know, man. Okay. I write that tweet. Then someone responds. Someone who is actually someone I know and is liberal, and is a sports fan, like, check, 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 in my world. And I write back to her, serious question, Lisa, why? She wrote about having kids. Earth truly can't sustain this, not hypothetical, factual, right? Blah, blah, blah. As my wife always says, why can't you just keep some thoughts in your head? Why do you always have to, why do you feel compelled that you have to share these things? And then, you see it. And I, I gotta think I'm a sports writer you've never heard of, 
I'm not an important figure in the world, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy who writes sports books. Then you say, well, I'm going to write about this. You see the tweet. What compels you to write about it? I felt like it was an important topic. You know, like I population control is something that has a pretty nasty history. And for for people to just like casually float the idea on the Internet, um, mm -hmm. it, it's it, it and then double down on it was like, <laughs> OK, this is not OK, <laughs> because. You know, like 60,000 Americans were sterilized in, in the name of controlling a certain population in America. Mm -hmm. And hardly anybody knows that. Um, and, you know, millions of other people were sterilized in India, for instance, on the basis that there was a quote unquote population bomb. And, and you know, millions and millions of people were going to starve within a matter of decades. So mm -hmm. I felt like, OK, this is an opportunity to talk about something that's important that people don't. Um, haven't really thought through to its logical conclusion. And so, yeah, I mean, I took that opportunity because these things are always like stewing in my brain, like mm -hmm. all of the time. Um, I deal with a lot of really, really heavy topics. I talk about basically anything that has to do with life and death is something that I am thinking about all the time. <laughs> so if it's abortion, if it's suicide, if it's assisted suicide, population control, like all of those things are already floating in my head. So mm -hmm. it wasn't that I specifically wanted to like drag you because I think you're a bad person. It was like, this is an opportunity to talk about something important. And did I handle it exactly the way that I should have? Um, the answer is no, which is why I apologize. But I hope that, you know, people can read the piece and still get something out of it because it does have valuable information in there that is more than, oh, Georgie is mad at Jeff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I Actually, I, here's what I want to tell you. I'm being serious about this. So I see it, you know, I see it on Twitter and then I read it and I'm, you know, my first instinct is, uh, you know, who the hell is this writer? Blah, blah, blah. And then when I take a step away, you are a really good writer. Like, if I were starting a publication right now and I needed a columnist who sort of with a conservative lean, who's precise, like, I just want to say, all right, sports author and podcaster Jeff Berman casually floated the idea of population control on Twitter Monday. Just saw a tweet for there's my tweet, blah, blah. Now, no, let's not share in the joy of acquaintances who are blessing the world with another child. Let's leverage our indubitable wisdom on cl climatology and public policy to reclaim Earth survival and limited resources are at stake and question whether they are doing the responsible thing. Oh, but he didn't stop there. When a Twitter user named Lisa clapped back with, as a mom of six kids, I'm going to say no. Our urodite intellectual thoughtfully responded, serious question, Lisa, why? Earth can't sustain this. No, no, not hypothetical, factual. He then went on to say, the Jeff Perlman approved number of children to have is, I don't know, two. My line that I like is, you wrote, our Chairman Perlman of the People's Republic of Know-It-Alls would be not sweet. It bothers me when people tell me to throw my garbage in the ocean. My garbage, my choice. And then you taught me a word that I didn't know, which is fecanophobia. Is that how you pronounce it? Fecanophobia. Yeah, fear of children. Yeah. Fecanophobia of some members of the American elite has blossomed into a full-blown hatred. Around this time last year, comedian Nikki Glaser tweeted, Don Jr. and his wife have five kids. No one should be having five kids. Why are people still allowed to have five kids? In general, many people in the mainstream feel comfortable dehumanizing and devaluing babies and children, which is why tweets like, like Perlman's, and Glazers must be roundly refuted. 
If calling out dangerous or moral opinions on Twitter were ever cheap sport for pundits with time on their hands, it isn't anymore. The fact that children born alive after abortions can literally legally be treated as garbage now should not be lost on you. I don't agree with your points 100% here, but I sort of, I feel like you write with a very sort of bam, 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 precise approach to words and to thought. And I wonder, you see I write this, you decide you're going to write a, uh, a piece about it. How do you go about it? Yeah, I pretty much always start with research or um, usually like, I mean, if we're going to get technical, like I open my document and I think, how is this going to be titled? What what kind of piece am I writing here? Um, generally, you know, like how long is it going to be? Is it going to be in depth? What kind of tone am I going to write with? Is it kind of funny or whatever? And I, I took kind of like a sassy tone with this because um, it's Twitter and anything that deals with Twitter, that's that just tends to be the tone that I adopt because that's the tone that I have when I'm on Twitter. Um, so I just figured that will appeal to people who are also on Twitter, which is like, you know, everybody who's interested in politics. So, um, right. yeah. And then I, I do research and uh, it, it kind of just, I don't know if your writing process is ever this way, but like you're, you're sitting there like three hours later and you're like, Oh, that got done. I'm not really sure how, but I see a completed piece in front of yeah. me. <laughs> and then you have somebody read it. Like I almost always have my husband read, uh, re read what I wrote to see if it makes sense to him. And, you know, if he catches anything that doesn't make sense or typos or whatever. Um, but, but yeah, so it really depends. Like the longer pieces. Oh, for sure. I outline, I outline hardcore <laughs> and, um, but for things like this, it kind of just, uh, I start with what's the general idea of what I want to say. And then I go do research. And then, you know, a lot of times, actually like a surprising amount of time, all after doing that, um, I, oh, and behold, I let the um, information influence my thesis. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll change it a little bit <laughs> based off of the information that I find. And that's always a good thing. I think, if you're a writer and you're never, ever changing what you planned on saying um, based off of the information that you're gathering, you're probably not doing it right. You wrote something I don't know how I feel about. It. I don't know if I agree or disagree. In that, in that piece, you wrote, if calling out dangerous and moral opinions on Twitter were ever cheap sport for pundits with time on their hands, it isn't anymore. I don't know. Because I feel like there are so many dangerous and moral opinions on Twitter that you could devote your life to calling out dangerous moral opinions on Twitter and you would never have time to eat or go to the bathroom. Like <laughs> can't call out everyone. You can't go after, right. Can't go after everyone who has an opinion that you find disgusting. No. Right. Um, that's not exactly what, what I meant by it. What I meant by it was there have been, you know, hundreds of thousands of quote unquote hot takes that are written because somebody says something, you know, like AOC says something stupid on Twitter and they're, and, and the pieces are just, they're just clickbait. They're just meant to um, make fun of somebody or just point out the ridiculous thing that somebody said. And they don't really go beyond that. There's no depth to the content at all. And what I was trying to say is we got to stop doing that. <laughs> like that's not helping anything. If you want to help things, you need to have depth to your content and really actually have something to say beyond saying, Oh, you know, 
AOC said that we're all going to die in 12 years. Isn't that ridiculous? You know what I mean? Look, so it's that the things that are said, I think because it's in a casual environment, Twitter is such a casual environment where people are, you know, just firing off tweets at three in the morning or whatever and not really thinking about it, that we think that what's said there doesn't matter. And even though the Twitterverse is um, quite different from the average population in terms of the political opinions that are most prevalent, um, it's just undeniable that what happens on Twitter and what is said on Twitter matters a lot. Like I wrote, you know, after the whole Covington debacle um, with that poor kid who was just basically defamed uh, because journalists went out and and did this whole echo chamber thing where they repeated the quote unquote reactions that people were having to something that happened and they didn't have all of the information and the whole thing just spun out of control into basically an entire myth, which is that he was deliberately um, mocking this native American man and he was the pr provocateur in the situation and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, what happens on Twitter matters. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who wants to wish me a happy 30th birthday. You're 47. I'm 30. Dad, your hair is gray, or it would be if you had hair. And your wrinkles have baby wrinkles. You're 47. I'll tell you what, I'll buy you a free Bob Gagliano Denver Gold jersey from 503 Sports if you admit my real age. Which is? 30. Okay, fine. You're 30. And? Go to 503-sports.com to check out the best throwback sports merchandise on the interweb. Right. You know and I know you're halfway to dead. Shh, go play in traffic. All right, so um, you wrote a piece called that I read and, and found fascinating called um, Pro-Porn Camille Paglia Doesn't Like Unsexy Instagram, But Her Reasons Come Up Short. Very sort of fascinating. Your lead was... Stripping is a sacred dance of pagan origins. Camille Paglia, the renowned academic and critic of modern feminism, once told a reporter for Penthouse Magazine as they toured New York's best-known strip clubs. Paglia continues to critique how sex and sexuality are conceived of in popular culture. Most recently, she derided the exhibitionism of celebrities posting unsexy but revealing pictures of themselves on Instagram, mostly bare-butt close-ups. Paglia's main problem with, quote, surprisingly unsexy Instagram is based on the fact that, quote, hypersexualized self-advertisement puts, quote, men in a driver's seat for careless hit-and-run hookups. She's concerned, as is virtually everyone, about the, quote, devaluation of women and preventing sexual assault. Quote, the line between public and private realms must be withdrawn, she writes. Yet in the same article, Paglia proudly declares that she is a staunch admirer of strip clubs and a veteran defender of pornography. She takes a stance because she sees it as a display of women's power over men, of women as goddesses, as she detailed in her penthouse interview is the same power that enchanted the Bible's King Solomon to sing of his beloved breast as twin fawns of a gazelle, the same power that led Solomon to let Delilah steal his strength. It was a really fat. I am not a biblical man by any stretch of the imagination. What was your motivation in writing this piece? What were you trying to get across or trying to discover? There's more to it than, than Paglia is letting out because she's kind of one of those 60s um, free spirit, free sexuality sorts of people. So she understands the um, the complementary nature of the sexes, but she's still very much like in that um, pagan world of, or that heathen world of like, just do whatever you want. 
um, as long as it's sexy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's not the worldview that I come from because as a Christian, I'm coming from the worldview that says that um, sex is part of a covenant relationship between two people, um, ideally for life. And that is the way that it was designed to be. So she's missing this huge aspect because she is coming from a totally secular worldview. And I just found it fascinating that she talked about, you know, the pagan origins of stripping and things like that, because it's like there's nothing new under the sun. And I, I find this over and over again, actually, in my writing, where you think that somebody is saying something that's kind of groundbreaking and super fascinating. And then you're like, Oh, this idea is actually really old. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you're drawing off of things where you maybe don't quite understand the full implications of what that means. And from a biblical worldview, like the things that she said was so fascinating because idolatry and adultery are, are, very related concepts. They are very closely related in the Bible to the point where when the Old Testament prophets were warning the Israelites about what was going to happen if they didn't follow God's commandments or or telling them, like, you guys are committing idolatry with these other people groups over here and worshiping their gods, um, it's called whoring after other gods. That's the term that they use. You're whoring after other gods. So these concepts are, are highly related. And it's just interesting because she sees this as it's okay to, to worship somebody's sexuality. Um, whereas I come, come from the perspective of this belongs in a covenant relationship. And that is one of the most beautiful things about it. Um, so it's just totally two different worldviews that I'm trying to parse because Conservatives, um, for some reason, <laughs> they really love Camille Paglia. And I don't understand why, because you, if you actually read the things that she writes and you listen to her interviews, you're like, we are on two different planets. But they, mm-hmm. but they, but they, they've latched onto her, I think, because she, um, believes in, you know, the fundamental reality that everybody should believe in, that there are only two sexes. And because there are only two sexes, there are only two genders. And she said that over and over again. And she's been willing to stand up to um, her colleagues in academia and be like, guys, you're delusional. You're promoting a delusion, which I understand. But like the rest of the stuff that she believes is just totally, totally, um, totally inconsistent with what most conservatives and particularly Christians believe. Uh, right. You know, where she's, she said, you know, like, um, hebephilia is, is basically okay. She's spoken in a way that <laughs> is, is disturbing. You know what I mean? Cause like, like the, the level of consent for young teenagers is like, that's, there's a reason why we have consent law. There's, there's a reason why in most states, it's like 17 or 18 or whatever. So I find a lot of her ideas to be highly just incompatible with my worldview. So it's like, you know, you take, you, you pick and choose. It's not like you completely ignore what she says or what Jordan Peterson says or whatever. He's another one that's kind of along those lines, but you can only follow them down the path so far because 
they don't adhere to your same presuppositions. I, I've never asked a person sort of of your faith this question. You are obviously devoutly Christian. You're very religious. You use that as a big part of the framework of your writing and arguments you take. Are you allowed or do you question the Bible when you are writing and you are holding people to a religious standard? Are you also allowed and do you ever sort of read the Bible and think, is this right? Can Do I just need to believe this or am I allowed to sort of question this and debate this? And maybe I don't actually agree with what the Bible is saying. So I always start from the basis of this is the word of God. When it comes to how am I understanding this and am I understanding it properly? That's where you have to stop and think and do your research and figure out like what what is actually being said here. I think that a lot of people who are not very involved in, in theology and not exposed to that very much. You know, maybe they go to church casually. They have this idea of the Bible that's like that you should be able to pick up the Bible and read it like it's a, a fifth grade textbook and everything should be easy to understand. But we don't take that same approach to reading Plato or Aristotle or, or Seneca or whoever. Um, we take it as like, wow, this person was living in a totally different time, in a different culture, dealing with very complex topics, and we need to interpret that in its historical and cultural context. How would the readers at the time have understood that? And how do we read it in light of the rest of biblical revelation? So it's reading the historical and cultural context, um, getting as much of that as you can, and also looking, you know, kind of zooming out and looking at um, biblical revelation as a whole and saying, what are the other things that are being said here and how does that factor into it? So Bible study is a really complicated thing. It's not, it's not simple at all. And um, I regularly lament the fact that we, a, a lot of people will, they'll spend time reading Bible verses, but they don't spend time actually studying Bible passages. So that's the way I approach it. I approach it as this is the word of God, but I know for a fact, you know, because I'm, I'm, I dabble in this realm fairly often that there are people who have legitimate disagreements on certain aspects of how things should be interpreted. Um, there's only one right interpretation, but the question is who's right about it? I think a lot of people, so again, like as a, as a person of non-faith, I've always admired people who have faith. And I think a part of me actually over the years has envy people. Like I envy people who are comfortable with death, with the idea that there's a heaven and, you know, blah, 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 I'll go there. Like I, I envy that because I don't have that. Right. And there are a lot of things about sort of Christianity and, and faith in general across the religious spectrum that I lack. Um, that I admire. And I do feel like with the rise of Donald Trump and his sort of being embraced by the Christian right, I have kind of lost faith in the faithful. A guy comes along and I get people admire the, well, his politics are good, blah, blah, blah. But like three times married, has sex with a porn star yeah. 10 days after his son is born, pays the porn star off. I am struggling to see how people of faith can set that stuff aside. And I feel like faith, in a way, faith is under attack because people are having less faith in the faithful who practice and preach faith. It's a very relatable perspective. And these are things that, you know, 
um, devout Christians have been talking about um, and wrestling with for years, you know, since Donald Trump came into the race. To what extent does character play into our political calculations? Because you can't separate them out. You know, um, your character is going to influence how you govern. And certain things, for instance, could make you susceptible to blackmail. So they're not like things that is like, this is your personal life and this is your public life. Like, no, that's not reality. That's not how things work in the real world. So Christians have um, been wrestling with this for a, for a, quite a while and saying, yeah, this guy has some, he's, he's done some, some things that are not okay, you know? And what does this say about him? What does this say about his faithfulness, like, for instance, you know, if he couldn't be faithful to his wife, is he going to be faithful to his campaign promises? You know, these are legitimate questions to ask. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like I said in that, that article I wrote about, you know, 12 ways to know if you should be voting or not. Uh, character matters. And you've got to weigh whether or not, to what extent is it going to influence your decisions and, and what office are you going to be in? You know, these are things that Christians have been been wrestling with for a while. And ultimately, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, especially since, you know, I believe that you don't just look at what people are promising you right now. Now that they're running for office, you look at what they've said in the past and what they've done in the past. And I couldn't look at Donald Trump's record at that time and say, yeah, you know, this I should vote for this guy. Like I have a certain bar, a certain standard that you have to meet just period, like point blank in order for me to vote for you. Um, a lot of other people treat this very differently, and I don't blame them for it. They just have a different approach where it's like, this is always, always, always about the lesser of two evils. You know, it's always, always, always about who most closely aligns with my values. And if you're, you know, a conservative and you're looking at Hillary Clinton, you're like, she is just way, way out there, totally opposed to everything I stand for. And Donald Trump is like somewhere in the middle. You know, so... People have different calculations to this, but, um, yeah, no, but what you said makes total sense. That's, those are the things that I were saying, that I was saying during the 2016 election, things that, you know, Eric Erickson was saying and many others. They're like, we're trying to say, yeah, character matters. And it, it's okay to not vote for somebody if you're not comfortable with their character. And that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a traitor to the Republican Party or something like that. Like, that's ridiculous. Voting is a personal thing, and you shouldn't put um, partisanship before your personal conviction. When I briefly thought I really hated you after uh, social media, I went to read your stuff, and you wrote something, and I was like, ah, right? I was like, I'm going to hate this piece, and it's called 12 Ways to Know If You Shouldn't Vote Today. And this is when I first realized I really like your writing, <laughs> and I thought we'd get along very nicely, because I was like, oh, you know what? I kind of... You wrote a piece, 12 Ways to Know you, sh you Shouldn't Vote Today. This is before the last election. Your lead was amid pushes from the left, right, and in between to get out your vote. It's your civic duty. Save our democracy. Don't let Orange Hitler get his way. It seems hardly anyone is pausing to ask, wait a minute, maybe some people do well not to vote. I'm here to let you off the hook with this simple 12-question quiz. If you answer yes to four or more of these questions, you should either cram really hard for your midterms or more likely play hooky on election day. And your 12, I just want to read, your list of 12 is do you get all or most of your news from late night comedians? Are you inclined to vote primarily based on a program, tax credit, or other specific policy change that a politician has promised you? Is pressure from your friends and coworkers one of the primary reasons you consider voting? 
do, do your habits show you'd rather play Candy Crush than read a news article? Um, would you say, um, if an on-the-street interviewer asks you who the vice president is, are you primarily motivated by rage because, quote, the other side wants to, quote, take away your guns, free speech, healthcare, voting rights, uh, bodily autonomy, but you can't point to any specific policy position to justify that belief? Number seven, do you vote D or R straight down the ballot without having any idea about the individual candidates, platforms, or character? Eight, do you know what your stance is on the big issues? Policy, welfare, gun control, local versus centralized policy. Nine, are you motivated by fear based on what campaign staff or activists have told you about a candidate or party? Ten, do you follow politics or policy at all outside your election season, or do you rely on news filtered to you? Number one, how tongue-in-cheek is that versus how serious is that? And do you think there's something to be said for people not voting? Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty serious. Like, I, I wrote it in kind of a, a lighthearted way because I was hoping that people would be open to actually reading it if it wasn't so accusatory. Because um, I don't mean to accuse people. You know, people are, are busy and they have other priorities be, besides politics. And I think that's something that people who are, for instance, on Twitter all the time, um, lose sight of is that like other people have other things to do with their lives that are also very important. Um, but we act like, you know, whenever midterms or, or the presidential election rolls around, like it's the freaking end of the world. If somebody doesn't vote on election day, it's like, if they don't want to vote, why would you want them voting? They don't care enough, you know? And that's how you get a, a tyranny of the majority is by rounding up all of those people and guilt tripping them and pressuring them into into voting and feeding them a lot of propaganda that they don't know any better because they haven't been following politics for like more than five minutes. And and then you sort of round up a, a majority and then you get somebody into office and lo and behold, like they don't reflect any of the values of the people that they're actually governing. Like if you don't want to vote, don't vote. It's okay. It's like I said at the end of the article, it's, it's like you have a right to own a firearm and to, to exercise that right, but it doesn't mean you have to. Like if you can't handle a firearm responsibly, you, you shouldn't have one. You know, you shouldn't be going to the gun range or keeping it in your house or, or whatever. It's like, but that's still your right. It doesn't demean the right to not exercise it all the time. So. I, everybody seems to be saying, and this has been the the line from people, it seems like across the political spectrum for ages and ages and ages, which is, oh my gosh, we have such low voting rates in this country. It's such a terrible thing how people aren't as involved as they should be. Well, it's like how many how many people in the population are actually up for the challenge of dealing with all of these really complex policy issues? And, you know, having convictions on a variety of different topics to the point where they feel like they can be informed about the kind of things that they're voting for, especially if you live in a state that puts out initiative after initiative after initiative, which is like my state, Washington state does that all the time. It's like, guys, we can't keep up. Nobody is reading these. Nobody understands them. All right. So you wrote a piece uh, not that long ago, October uh, 2018. From trolling to fleecing, co-creator of Q hoax explains its scary evolution. Your lead was a little less than a year after the first QAnon post, which has since led to hundreds of thousands of news junkies down a conspiracy rabbit hole. News correspondent Jack Posobiec from One American News Network spoke with one of the co-originators of the Q persona, who runs a group of individuals posting as a high-level government intelligence officer on an anonymous free speech platform called 8chan. 
They leave thousands of riddles, clues, odd questions, and cryptic lines as breadcrumbs for their followers to help them in their search for truth. Uh, major, many major media outlets have overviewed the nest of conspiracy theories nurtured within Q followers. Okay. And I saw this piece, and because I'm an idiot, and because social media and life has made this very presumptuous, I thought, oh, before I knew you, here's Georgie, and she's going to defend QAnon, and, you know, more blah, blah, blah. And it was the exact opposite. You actually wrote this piece sort of calling them out. And um, they no. did not respond well. You told me this off the air. They did not respond well. What was the reaction from the lovely people at QAnon to your piece yeah. from last October? So the day that that post went up, I don't always know exactly when posts are going to post. So, you know, sometimes you submit something and you could wait, you know, two days or two weeks or whatever. But that was the day that I found out I was pregnant with my second kid. Um, and pregnancies are very hard for me, um, as this one has definitely <laughs> proven to be so. So uh, it's, it's like a lot to take in. Like, you know, we were planning on having a kid. But when you find out that you're pregnant again, it's just it's a lot. Okay, so that piece went up the day I found out that I was pregnant. Or it might have been like maybe the morning after. Um, and the onslaught of trolls who came after me on Twitter, um, on Facebook, just all over the place was breathtaking. I mean, it, it almost knocked me off my feet. Um, they were calling me like the worst names imaginable, which I'm not going to repeat. And a lot of them were very sexist, which was interesting to me because these are people who, I don't know, claim to, you know, like if you're kind of sort of thinking you're on the right, you would think that, you know, you claim to value women in, in like some way, but yeah, they were like super, super sexist. Um, just like angry that I was a woman. So maybe they're incels or something. I don't know, but there were so many of them. And then, so the people at Patriot Soapbox, which is like their main propaganda outlet that all of these QAnon followers um, watch obsessively. And the people who run Patriot Soapbox are basically the people behind QAnon um, who are, you know, posting from this quote unquote anonymous account that's posing as some high level government official. Um, they came after me, they saw it and they posted it and they were like, this is total disinformation. And we're going to be talking about this on Patriot Soapbox today. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, bring it on. And yeah, well, apparently they did because after that, it was just even worse. It was, you know, like my mentions were totally spammed with the most disgusting things that you could call people. And, and you know, what's worse is worse than being called like, you know, for instance, the C word or something like that is um, having your integrity questioned because what these people will try to do is they'll try to gaslight you and say, you just didn't do enough research. You didn't do your due diligence on this. Like these people have no idea how much time I spent on this piece on researching QAnon. It it was very important to me because there's somebody in my life personally who got sucked into this. So this was a topic that was very important to me and that I spent a lot of time on. And they're like, you're, you're just a liar. You're a propagandist. And, you know, the Federalist is, is funded by the CIA. Like just weird things like that, like calling me a CIA shill or, you know, saying that 
I'm, I'm just ignorant and just like, you know what? That's like the worst thing is when this is okay. I don't know if you agree with this, but that is the worst thing. You can call people names. You can tell them that you totally disagree with them. You know, you can tell them to go jump off a cliff, but when somebody comes after you and your integrity as a journalist, that was the worst aspect right. of it. Besides, right. you know, I, having to look out the blinds and like check if cars are circling the block because a lot of the things that they said were very menacing. They weren't direct threats, but they were menacing in the sense where I was like, some loose cannon, because there are loose cannons. If you, if you, um, you know, look at the news on QAnon over the past year or so, there have been loose cannons that have done some crazy hmm. stuff because they're, they're legitimately insane and delusional. So you just never right. know what's going to happen. I mean, you didn't, you did not mince your words. I mean, you tweeted a couple of days, I think after the story came out, QAnon is fake and the chief people promoting it are lying money grabbers. Check out my short video outlining five reasons why you should believe that. Um, it wasn't like you were, you were hiding from it. You were definitely sort of standing by your words where you were, I don't know, were you, were your husband, were you, is your husband the way my wife is? My wife sometimes is like, listen, you gotta, you got to dial this back a little bit. Do you do you ever feel that way, or does your husband ever feel that way, or your parents ever say, "Listen, you got to take a chill here, Georgie. This isn't worth um, getting shot over." Yes, to a certain extent. When he sees that I'm getting um, like very absorbed into something on even an emotional level, because I am that kind of person, um, he'll be like, "Hey, you know, you need to you need to come up mm -hmm. for air. You know, like maybe take a break from this." Um, he he wasn't too too worried. Right. Um, which I can totally understand his perspective because he wasn't the one who was reading all of my comments, you know, and that is a huge mistake. Don't ever read your mentions if you know that there's a huge attack of, of trolls that are coming after you. It's not worth it to get to like those three comments that are positive or, you know, constructive or maybe offering some piece of constructive criticism. It's just not worth it. Like you're, it's not worth your mental health. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's like when you're yeah. in that zone and you're absorbing all of that hatred, that has a pretty big impact on your mental health. And I think that that is a problem that is underestimated and overlooked, particularly in the writing community. And that's hard to deal with and that. I think maybe, I don't know, somebody should should come up maybe with some guidelines on on how to to deal with hate. Well, Georgie, seriously, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming on and doing this. I like how we uh, we started with a awkward encounter, and we ended up having a really sort of productive and engaging dialogue. And if nothing else, I feel comfortable in blaming the whole episode on you, just because I don't like taking blame for anything. Yeah, that's the same thing I told the nurse who tried to draw my blood the other day. She, she they stuck me three different times, and I'm like, it's okay, it happens, it's my fault. I have tiny veins, but what can you do? And now, another segment of... People ask me sometimes, when did you know you want to be a journalist? Or when did you start your journalism career? And as cliche and kind of quaint as it sounds, this whole thing sort of began for me back at Mayopac High School in Mayopac, New York, when, as a senior, I was the sports editor of the high school newspaper, The Chieftain. And at the time, The Chieftain was a pretty solid high school paper. It, um... It came out about once a month. Our editor was a kid named John Kozak. Smart kid was now a lawyer. 
We had a staff of about six people and a bunch of writers. Uh, and the moment when I would say I was first hit by the electric bug that was writing was my senior year, I wrote a piece for the Chieftain called Cheerleading, Sport or Activity? With a question mark. And my conclusion was that cheerleading was an activity and that there was no debate about it. This was not a sport. It was not really a physical endeavor. It was kind of a joke. And I wrote this piece, and it turned into a somewhat controversial debate point around school. And I remember sitting in the cafeteria, and all the cheerleaders showed up. And I think it must have been a Friday, because on Fridays, they all wear their cheerleading uniforms to school. And the cheerleading uniforms were short skirts and these sweaters. And I was sitting there, geeky Jeff Perlman, cross-country runner, sports editor of the Chieftain. And these girls are yelling at me. And they're barking at me, probably, how can you write that? And you're an idiot and blah, blah, blah. And all I see are the legs and the breasts and the long hair. And I smell the perfume. And I'm just this little 18-year-old kid who's been ignored by people, women certainly his whole life, still haven't kissed a girl. And I'm like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. This is the greatest thing ever. And that's how I became a journalist. I want to thank today's guest, Georgie Borman, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Georgie on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman and read her work at The Federalist. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.